daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast from Sports Social with a new episode seven days a week. This is your one-stop shop when it comes to keeping on top of all the goings-on in the English top flight. So hit subscribe now and that way you won't miss one. On today's show, we look ahead to Chelsea's trip to Brighton tonight after being bruised by Manchester City on Saturday and possibly folding in the title race. Can the Blues respond against the Brighton side whose manager Graham Potter is being linked with the vacant Everton job? In the other dugout, Thomas Tuchel has been named as FIFA's 2021 Men's Coach of the Year, along with five Premier League players in the Team of the Year. We'll go through those names and ask... Do they deserve it? Plus, with just 12 days to go until the transfer window closes, we've got the latest gossip for you, including the potential for Christian Eriksen to return to the Premier League. I'm Niall McCorn and all of that to come on today's Football Social Daily in the company of Sports Social's 2021 Burnley Basher of the Year, Marley Anderson, and Prawn Eater of the Year, Joel Tudor. <laughs> Morning, boys. I'll take that one. <laughs> you have to take it, Joel. Um, uh, obviously, you'll be listening to this wondering what on earth is Niall talking about, Prawn Eater of the Year. But me and Marley have noticed since Joel's joined the team, he seems to have a, a unique fondness for prawns. Every lunchtime, Marley, in the office, yeah. if it's not a prawn sandwich, then something's gone wrong. If it's not yeah. a prawn sandwich, he, he, goes, hung, he goes hungry. Honestly, when I, when <laughs> I was two years old, fan. when I was two years old, I used to be taking prawns out of the shells on my little high chair. So, listen, I'm a man of culture. <laughs> Does that mean you're technically part of what's known as the prawn sandwich brigade, Joel? No, because I've, I've been there I've, since I was two. Like, listen, that wasn't a thing when I was two years old. I am part of the, the seafood culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking of the seafood culture. We're going to talk about the Seagulls because Brighton Ooh. hosts Chelsea tonight in the Premier League. And actually, Chelsea as a club have been criticised for, you know, kind of engineering this prawn sandwich brigade kind of culture. But that's beyond the point. Um, there was due to be two Premier League games tonight. Burnley against Watford was also set to take place this evening, but that has been postponed regrettably in quotation marks, by the Premier League after Burnley allegedly only have 10 fit first-team players available. Supposedly, Charlie Taylor has gone down with injury now. Obviously, they've sold Chris Wood recently. They cannot fulfil the fixture. So that big relegation clash against Watford tonight has been postponed. So just the one game for us to focus on at the Amex. Brighton against Chelsea, 8 o'clock kickoff. Now, Chelsea were dealt a huge blow by Man City in the title race at the weekend, Joel. What do you think the mindset the players will be now at Chelsea after that defeat on Saturday? Well, I mean, I'm sure all of them will have dealt, been dealt with a huge psychological blow because now they have to suddenly start looking below them rather than ahead of them. When you've got 13 points between the champions who literally don't look like they're going to let off any steam at all whatsoever, they only conceded 13 goals as well as City this season, which is ridiculous at this stage. And suddenly you've got... West Ham, who are only five points away from them. You've got Arsenal, who've got two games in hand on them, which would take them points behind Chelsea. You've got Tottenham, who are four four games in hand behind them, which would take them pretty much level with Chelsea. Manchester United have got two games in hand. So you can see that all the teams below them are really starting to gain pace on them now, which at around two months ago, you would never have thought that would have been the case, considering they were really high up in the in the ranks and... They looked like they were strong, but suddenly these, especially the draws, when you just look at, for example, Manchester City compared to Chelsea, the big thing that's apparent between the two is the amount of draws. 
and Chelsea in a lot of games this season they've just not been able to hold on and take the wins whereas City have been absolutely ruthless um, but I think obviously that that's beneficial to how well their depth is compared to Chelsea's but to be fair Chelsea has got a great depth but obviously they've been dealt with a lot of blows with Lukaku being out and Jorginho and Kante being out and they're them two in the midfield as a pivot are just kind of they're like the bread and butter of the team aren't they when you don't have them in there you really notice it but I think when you look at the points tally now City are gaining such a lead that it's not even just a lead on paper it's like a psychological lead where when City get to that 60 point mark in the which will happen in the next two games suddenly they just seem too far and out and I think Liverpool are the only ones who can really start to at least keep tabs with them but then obviously you've got Salah and Mane who are not there so City mm. are in an amazing position right now and Chelsea I know I know Thomas Tuchel is going to rule out the title 100% and you know what rightly so I said it at the start of the season I didn't think Chelsea had it in them to continue a, ch- a title race this year um, and I think the best hope for them this year now is you know obviously try and defend the Champions League I think they've got every chance of doing that as we've seen in previous campaigns, you don't need to be the best team in the Europe to win it. You just need to be the one where the cards fall in right in the right place at the right time. Um, and I think you know they will probably go far in that competition. But right now they're getting sucked well and deeply into that um, top four race, and I'm not surprised to be honest because they're just the form's just been atrocious in the last month or so. They've just been dropping points in silly games. You talk about Thomas Tuchel and we'll speak about him in a bit more detail later on in the podcast because Chelsea have absolutely cleaned up at the FIFA awards that took place um, last night. But as for what his focus will be now, Marley, Joel thinks it will be looking over the shoulder and solidifying themselves in the top four race. I think the gap between Chelsea and the rest of the chasing pack is quite significant. City, Liverpool and Chelsea are streets ahead. So for me, it feels like the top four is is all but secure, barring a, a real capitulation. So the Champions League is another thing that Joel touched upon. Do you think that that is it now? It's all about defending that Champions League crown because... Even the most optimistic of Chelsea fans will probably admit that the title race is now over for them. Yeah, I think so. I think um, the fact that they did it last year, probably against the odds, just, um, well, maybe against the odds, maybe, you know, because nobody expected them to win it last year. Um, that just, that's, that's just given belief that mm. they can beat anyone on the day. And if you if you can do that, but not stretch it out over a season, you know that you can go and win it again. You know, they've beaten everyone last year in the Champions League that they needed to beat and got to the final and beat the favourites Manchester City. So you're looking at that and saying, why can't we do that again? Um, the the thing now is that uh, Man City have got such a, um, a sort of psychological thing over everyone and Chelsea in particular as well now because I think Tuchel started off beating Guardiola the first three times they played or something like that and then he's not beat him since. And I think both games this season have gone City's way. Um, if I remember rightly, and if they ever met in the Champions League, City would probably start favourites and, and confident again. So, um, if they can avoid, um, well, if they can avoid City, they probably back themselves against most other teams because I think the the three best teams in the world are probably all in the English Premier League at the minute. With maybe maybe Bayern crashing that party with Man City and Liverpool as well. So, um, it's one of them where you you know you're out of the title race. I think now. I think. 13 points with with uh, 16 games to go is, is just undoable when Man City have been so good. Um, and also they're struggling with, they're not struggling with African nations, players going away mm. like, like Chelsea are with their first choice goalkeeper. So 
um, that's pretty much gone. So it's it's a chance of it's a case for me of looking at what else, what are the silverware you can get from this um, from this season, and they could still end up with the Carabao Cup, the FA Cup, and the Champions League. So it's not really a not really a, a written off season in in total. Yeah, imagine that an off season and you still possibly win a treble. That would be some some going. I mean, it's not a true treble as people would say. You need the league for that, but to win three trophies in a season, I think the last time that was done, both domestic cups and a European Cup, was Liverpool in two thousand and one. So it's been a long time um, since that's been the case for for an English side to do a treble of that sort. Still a long way to go though for Chelsea, mind you. Just quickly then, Marley, what do you think the reaction will be? Do you think we'll see a, a Chelsea that come out as a wounded animal, you know, and Brighton should be really fearful of them and they'll, they'll come out all guns a-blazing? Or do you think that it might go the other way and that Man City defeat would have really damaged them? Um, I think, to be honest, uh, when when Bright, like Brighton, we say it a lot, you know, they play nice football and all possession-based and, and good to watch and whatever. But when they come up against a team that also does that, they tend to come out second best. Um, and Chelsea do that. So I think Chelsea will... Will have enough to get through. I think they they are still a bit of a wounded animal. They won't want to be like uh, you know we say they're out of the title race, but they won't just give up the 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 chase sort of thing. They still want to finish above Liverpool. They'll still want to put as much distance between them and the top, uh, sorry them and fourth and fifth as as possible because they've all got games in hand coming up. Arsenal have got a couple of games in hand uh, and can go two points behind them if they win both of those games. Uh, and you don't want a, a small gap coming into the, when the Champions League starts again because you want to put your eggs in that basket a little bit more when the time comes. So it's about uh, stretching that lead as much as possible now. Um, and I think Chelsea will start that by beating Brighton tonight. As 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 nice as Brighton play, they've they've not mm. got the cutting edge to go and beat to go and beat Chelsea. I don't think. Talking of Brighton's style of play, Graham Potter's won plenty of plaudits for that, Joel. And Rafa Benitez, of course, as we discussed on the podcast already this week, has recently been sacked by Everton. And so the manager's post is vacant there at Goodison Park. Graham Potter's been linked with that position. He's also been linked with Spurs in the past. I think in the summer before Antonio Conte went into Tottenham, Graham Potter was one of the names bandied around. Just how good a job is he doing at Brighton, in your opinion? It must be a half-decent one if he's being linked with clubs that are no disrespect to Brighton, but much bigger than them. Well, I think he's been linked to absolutely every single club who's lost a manager this year. He seems to just fall into the hat like the Goblet of Fire a little bit, so um, <laughs> pun intended with that one. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly what his level is because obviously he's he's made Brighton into pretty much a top top eight, top nine side after coming up uh, from the championship literally not long ago, really. Um, and I think it's testament to the fact that yeah, I think Brighton gave him a seven-year contract, didn't they? Which shows just how much belief they had in him mm. when they first hired him. Um, I think was it was it Chris Hutton that ended up leaving them and he replaced them. So, yeah, um, and, and that new contract, Joel, was pretty much within the first, I think, 18 months of him having the Brighton job. So I think they were quite keen to, to get him on that new deal. But do you think there's a little bit of an insurance policy in that? It's not often you see managers get such a long deal. Do you think that part of that is because they probably understand that someone's going to come sniffing around him at some point because of the job he's done yeah clearly someone had some incredible foresight when they gave him that contract I think the last one was Alan Pardew was it not uh, Marley <laughs> <laughs> and we, we yeah, know how that went. contract in 2012 that was yeah 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 so obviously the foresights were a little bit different in both cases but um yeah a seven-year contract is quite unheard of I think Diego Simeone is another one who had a seven eight-year contract with Atletico Madrid so it's it's I think, like you said, it is good insurance policy. It would have been an absolute nightmare had 
it turned out the other way and they would have had to pay out a, a good significant chunk of that contract. But considering how good the recruitment is, obviously, you know, with Basuma and Lamptey and all of these players who originally when he first joined, you would never have expected them to reach the heights that they currently are, where they're being linked with, you know, Manchester United and Arsenal and all the other clubs. That's just testament to how good of a job he's doing. And I think sometimes in these situations, managers need to be careful that they don't fall victim to their own success. And what I mean by that is, if, for example, he ended up going to Everton, you know, he has a very good setup at Brighton. He's pretty much, he's he's got, he's, he's ingrained his culture, his beliefs into it. His, his recruitment is pretty evident. If you go to a club like Everton, I don't know how much of a step up that actually is. Obviously, yeah. you've got if you the, were Potter now, would you leave for Everton? No, I wouldn't, and that's just the reason is because is it really a step up? I, I mean, you can look at the heritage of the clubs and whatever, and yeah, the, the, obviously at Everton are quite clearly the bigger club, but I mean, in terms of where they are at now and what Brighton are building, I mean, he's he's in a great position at the moment. And yeah, I the, think, the infrastructure I think is key as well, Joel. You know, you talk about yeah. what he's got at Brighton and the structure. You know, he gets on well with the chief executive. He understands all of the processes and things that are in place at Brighton. With Everton, it feels like they need a complete and utter restructure, which is going to take time. And as we've seen, the Everton fans maybe aren't quite as patient as they used to be. You said yes there, Marley. Can you just explain why, if you were Graham Potter, you would go to Goodison Park? Bigger club, better players, more chance to, to do something in, in the game. Um I more cash, <laughs> more cash. Yeah, uh, I think I think he's he's hit a bit of a, a a slight ceiling with Brighton. To be fair, um, I know that you know like they've come fifteenth and fourteenth and and seventeenth in the previous years, and they're probably on course to finish around tenth, eleventh this season, um, maybe even higher. But compared to what Everton could do if they got everything right, I think uh, I think it's not as not as high a ceiling. Um, Maybe one thing is the Everton job comes around every couple of years, so you might as well just bide your time. But it's around now. Um, they've got money. They've got, like I say, they've got better players. Like I look at Brighton, and we always say they've got. They just struggle to to score goals to cap off their good play, like they're great between the boxes, and then in the in the in both boxes they're not good enough. I think Everton's players. If you look at Calvert Lewin, and they got if they went and got another striker as well. I just think Everton could do way way better than than what Brighton can do. I think the, the ceiling's way higher. I think they could crash that top six or seven if everything went well. So it's um it's something I would think about if I was him. But I think even yesterday he was he was asked in his pre match press conference and he said something like, "I'm at one of the best club, uh, best run clubs in in the country." And that was that that was a bit of a a sly like a, a slight on, on Everton because they ran like an absolute circus up there. So it's not really that tempting. If, you, if you're if you a manager who's happy with what you're doing, like, like you know, he's got a six-year contract left or whatever he is, um, it's not as tempting to go to a club, an obviously bigger club, which he's run like an absolute shambles, that have sacked the head of recruitment, sacked the, the medical admin, uh, medical director, they've sacked their... Um, their manager and there's a couple of other places as well the director of football's gone as well so it's not as tempting but as a club I think it's a it's a step up just maybe the timing isn't right so but managers managers are egotistical so I think that he could he could be there and be like well I can sort this out but 
to be fair, he doesn't seem like that type of character. He just seems to have his head screwed on a little bit more. So I don't blame him for staying. But if I was him, I'd be I'd be thinking about it. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think that's often why we see managers like Sean Dyche linked with bigger jobs. You know, Everton maybe is one of those clubs where you could have, in years gone by, seen Sean Dyche linked to it. But I think he's now kind of made his bed at Burnley and he's set his stall out and he's quite happy being the Burnley manager. And I feel similar about Graham Potter. That's just my opinion. Of course, his Brighton side host Chelsea tonight, eight o'clock in the Premier League. And just building on Everton, as Potter has been linked to that vacant manager's role at Goodison Park, Everton have actually sounded out their old manager, Roberto Martinez, who managed the club for three years between 2013 and 2016. Currently the Belgian manager, um, the Belgian national team manager, they've sounded him out to replace Benitez and supposedly the Belgian FA have refused permission for Martinez to talk to Everton. No real surprise, considering we are now in a World Cup year. That's it for the first part of Football Social Daily. And we'll be talking about the FIFA team of the year. After this, there is some certain Premier League representation. We'll discuss it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League show from Sport Social. If you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast again. And our show is part of the Sport Social Podcast Network. There are loads of great podcasts as part of the roster, and you can go and check them out on our website, sport-social.co.uk. When you get onto the homepage, click the podcast tab at the top of the screen and that will take you to the full list of all the podcasts from a range of different sports loads of different Premier League clubs with podcasts around them as well so make sure you check that out that's sport-social.co.uk or if you just want to search for any of the podcasts on the network you can find them on your usual podcast provider Time now to talk about the FIFA Team of the Year, which was revealed yesterday. There are five Premier League players involved, more than any other league in Europe. So let's go through the players. We're going for the traditional 3-3-4 formation, lads, in the Team of the Year. Um, It's Donnarumma in goal, Diaz, Bonucci and Alaba as defenders. Conte, Jorginho, De Bruyne is the midfield. And the forward four is Haaland, Messi, Ronaldo and Lewandowski. Now that is a decent team, but that's why it's a fantasy team. It's a team of the year. And as I mentioned, those five Premier League players involved are Ruben Diaz from Man City, Kevin De Bruyne also from Manchester City, Jorginho and Conte from Chelsea, and Cristiano Ronaldo of Manchester United. Out of those players that I've mentioned that play in the Premier League currently, Joel, who do you think is the most deserving of their place in that FIFA team of the year, which was announced last night? Uh, Well, I think you'd have to give it to Jorginho. Um, and that's purely because if a player wins the Euros and the Champions League and he was pretty much a pivotal player in both of those competitions I think he's he's had the year of his life hasn't he really and obviously he finished uh, third in the Ballon d'Or rankings so him and I would say Kante for sure are the ones who are the absolute surefire ones I'm pretty unsure with Kevin De Bruyne though I'm not quite sure what he did in the last year to actually warrant himself in there because he had a lot of injury issues as well um, so I'm quite unsure how he's got his place in that, but I mean that formation is quite <laughs> quite formidable, isn't it? Four up top, they really stack the attack going forward. Just freestyle football, they don't care about if they get caught on the counter attack. Um, but yeah, I don't know. These FIFA awards are a little bit dubious to me, especially after that made-up striker award that they gave to Lewandowski as a bit of a 
consolation for losing out the Ballon d'Or ridiculously to Messi. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say Jorginho. I think he's been far and out. He's a very old school type midfielder. He's very similar to how like Tony Crowe's plays in terms of he's just he does the bread and butter stuff so well, and that's really underrated in football and um, especially for Italy. I think he was one of the the real pioneers in that midfield next to Barella um, and Verratti at, at times. So I think yeah, he's he's well deserving of that. Not many players win a Champions League and European. Um, international cup double which is such a rarity so yeah i'd definitely say Jorginho what about you Marley do you have a different opinion uh no I think Jorginho's achievements can't really be um overlooked I think you can you can probably argue about whether he's as good as other players that that aren't in the team but you, you can't really argue with with what he did in the year um, to to warrant his place in the team, you, you can't argue about Messi and Ronaldo being in there because neither of them are coming off the back of their their best seasons. Um, but I think didn't Ronaldo win win an award for like most goals or something and most international the, goals, yeah, yeah. And it's like they've probably thought, well, we can't leave him out of the main team, so how are we going to get him in? And then they've gone, <laughs> sod it, we'll go three three four, like some sort <laughs> of like a child a child's been in been put in charge of uh, making a formation. I'm pretty sure De Bruyne is only in there because they they uh, slightly uh, picked him ahead and, and thought, no, we can't have five strikers, surely, like a 2-2-5 two, a two, two, or a 3-2-5 <laughs> or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just... It's, I don't... I never pay much attention to these teams because you never know what it's judged on, do you? So, I mean, Kante's performances in the Champions League were, were stunning, I remember. I think he was man of the match in both quarterfinals, both semifinals... Uh, legs and uh, one of the man of my, one of the best on the pitch in the final as well. So, like in terms of performances, I don't think anyone influenced more than Kante in the Champions League. Um, but in terms of other things, I don't really have too much of a problem with anyone to be honest, because it's more of a, an award for achievements rather than what you sort of produced on the pitch. Sometimes, yeah, I, I think for me, Ruben Diaz would be my choice. I just think the impact he had on Manchester City, the season he had last year, City winning the Premier League title, the Carabao Cup, getting to the Champions League final. I think that was huge for Manchester City, him coming in and the impact he's made. So definitely agree with your cases for Jorginho, but I think Ruben Diaz would just be my choice um, just to kind of go for something slightly different. But yeah, five Premier League players in the FIFA team of the year, more than any other league in Europe, which... Is always a nice little boast for the Premier League. In terms of the Men's Coach of the Year award, um, that was won by Thomas Tuchel, Marley. Is that a deserved prize as well for you, do you think? Do you think Thomas Tuchel was the best coach in men's football in the year 2021? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, where, where, When did he come into Chelsea? It was the start of 2021, wasn't it? So it's pretty much the whole year at at Chelsea. So yeah, you, you couldn't you couldn't really argue with that. From where they were, he took them on a, a pretty um no, they weren't in the doldrums by any chance. I think people uh underestimate or sort of write off what Lampard did as if it was a massive crisis, but I don't think it was. But he he still took them to a new level, um, pretty much instantly as well. You know, he got them into the uh into the the, the top sort of title race almost. Like wasn't much of a title race obviously but he he got them sort of the best of the rest, um, and he backed it up with with big wins over Guardiola, as I said um, before in the first part of the show, and uh, he he produced 
what he can. I think he's he's not at, at previous clubs, especially PSG. I don't think he was appreciated because PSG have a hiring fire sort of um, culture at their club. So when he comes to Chelsea, once everyone's on the right page and everybody knows what he's trying to do. I think they, you're seeing the rewards of it really quickly and you're seeing a, when a talented squad believes in the manager and the manager knows what to do with them, you see a team that can go and win the Champions League when people might not expect them to. And the one person you look at and say, is he better than Guardiola, for example, last season, like in well, in 2021, he beat Guardiola in the league a couple of times and then he beat them in the biggest game in club football in the Champions League final. So you can argue that that was down to... Guardiola naming a strange team and the whole double pivot with Fernandinho and and Rodri both playing, but that's not uh, Tuchel's fault. He 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 took advantage of that and and won the game. Um, so you can't really argue with with anyone other than Thomas Tuchel taking the award. To be honest, I think I'm right in thinking that um, Chelsea beat Man City in the FA Cup semi final as well. They obviously went on to lose to Leicester, but. Yeah. You're right, Marley. They got the better of City on a number of occasions. I think the tables have somewhat turned now with the two league games that we've seen um, this campaign in the Premier League. But Thomas Tuchel was awarded the Men's Coach of the Year. Chelsea double when it comes to managers because Emma Hayes, the manager of Chelsea Women, uh, won the Women's Award for Best Coach of the Year. And the goalkeeper, Edward Mendy, won the Goalkeeper Award, the Best Goalkeeper of 2021. So, as I said before, lots of Chelsea here, Joel. They're absolutely cleaning up. Do you think that shows how impressed those outside of the Premier League have been with Chelsea and how they've kind of come through in the last 12 months? Yeah, def- well, definitely in the first six months from when Lampard got sacked, obviously Tuchel's done a, he's done a great job. But for me, I think, you know, obviously when you look back at like 2012 when they won the Champions League under Roberto Di Matteo, I don't think he would have ended up getting the manager of the year. I think it was Vicente Del Bosque who got that when he won the... Spanish uh, with the in the European Cup with um, Spain, so for me it probably would have been Roberto Mancini to win that, and that's purely just because it's been such a long time that Italy had won the European Championships, and the fact that they truly were the best team at the competition bar none, um, when not many people expected it prior to the tournament. Um, I don't think they were even in the top three people's lists of um, teams to win it. And, you know, he pretty much did it in England to win it. So I think for me, he would have been my pick. But yeah, you definitely can't underestimate how good of a six months it was for Chelsea in terms of the transformation. Because under Frank Lampard, when he actually got sacked, it was looking pretty bleak. But the only difference was is that he left an amazing crop of players that everyone knew would end up going on to do big things. Because I think in that summer, he spent a good £150 on the likes of like Kai Havertz and Zayech and and many others which added up to be a pretty decent amount and now they're all flourishing like amazingly under Thomas Tuchel and obviously uh, Kai Havertz was the guy who ended up putting the ball in the net to actually give Tuchel the European Cup so it shouldn't be underestimated that Tuchel did have an amazing crop of players to come into it wasn't like he was coming into an absolute shambles of a, of a club which didn't have any direction he he had an amazingly talented group um, but no, I definitely think for me it would have been Roberto Mancini to win that. Obviously, Italy beating England in the final of the Euros, an understandable shout for Roberto Mancini. And just to round off the Premier League representation at those FIFA awards last night, the Pushkas Award, which is given for the best strike of the year, was awarded to Eric Lamella for his Rabona effort 
in the North London derby, which I totally forgot about. So I don't know whether that's me not being impressed by the goal, Marley, or whether it wasn't worthy to win the strike of 2021. But I remember Yuri Tielemon's FA Cup final goal at Wembley from 30 yards into the top corner, past the best goalkeeper in the Premier League at the time, Mendy, who's just won the award, the underdog side winning it. For me, that was the best goal, but you can see why Lamella's cheeky strike has won the award. You can, yeah. Um, It was a hell of a strike. I mean, 99 players would have took it on the right foot, but because Eric Lamella was born with two two feet, but only one of them was for for, uh, shooting with, the other one he's purely for standing on. He (laughs) thinks, ah, sod it, Rabona. (laughs) And he's just, it's a great goal, to be fair. It takes some some technique and some power, but it's not the first one he scored. I remember one in the the, uh, Europa League a couple of years ago when he did it on the run, and he managed to... uh, to, to score for, I think, it's, I think it's about 20 yards as well. So he put some, a fair bit of power into it. But So it's not the first time he's done it. Um, obviously in the North London derby as well, it was a, a big game and, and all the rest of it. So you can't really argue with it, I don't think. But um, yeah, there was, a, there was a few decent goals. And if I was Tielemans, I'd be saying, well, um, he's, he's just used his, his, uh, his good foot there. He should have, he should have uh, took a swing on his right foot and proved that he's got one. <laughs> <laughs> Lamella wins the Pushkash Award for the best striker 2021. Thomas Tuchel, the best men's coach of the year. Edward Mendy, the best goalkeeper of 2021. So Chelsea really cleaning up in those FIFA awards last night. Will they make tonight exciting for themselves as well by beating Brighton? But we're going to leave Chelsea to one side. This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast, and it is the Premier League transfer window at the moment. We'll talk about all the latest gossip next after this. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. I'm Niall. Marley and Joel are alongside me and we're going to talk about the latest Premier League transfer gossip now. And the big news that came overnight is that Brentford have spoken to Christian Eriksen about a potential six-month deal at the Brentford Community Stadium. He left Inter Milan in the summer. His departure from Milan was largely due to the medical emergency he endured at the Euros, of course, He collapsed and he was brilliantly rallied around by his teammates and his life was saved by some quick thinking by the medical team and doctors um, on the pitch that day. And those medical personnel were recognised last night at the FIFA Awards, which was brilliant to see, as well as the Denmark national team. But he's been without a club for the first six months of 2021. And now as we head into 2022, he could be offered an opportunity by a club with a strong Danish contingent. Brentford, of course, managed by... A Dane in Thomas Frank. They've got links to FC Michelin, which are a Danish club. And Christian Eriksen has allegedly been sounded out, Marley, about a potential six-month deal in the Premier League. Now, this is a bit of a surprise one, but he knows London, having formerly played for Spurs. He hasn't really had any other offers. And um, it's a bit of an opportunity for him to come and kind of re-establish himself as a top player again. It is, yeah. I think this um, this whole transfer from, from all sides makes sense. Um, as you say, you know, there's a there's a culture there of of Danish players and and um, you know the manager's Danish. There's players like Dalsgaard and um, Roeslev and if there's a few. There's um, there's even a couple of Swedes in there as well. So it's like a little mini Scandinavia down in down in uh, Brentford. Um, there's a few. So I think six months is something to just ease you back into the game, like. 
He's not played since that game in the in the Euros, so you're talking what, like six six or seven months now. Um, so he needs a new challenge, but I think people are forgetting what a good player he is. And I think people are thinking when they think of Christian Eriksen, they think, oh, he's had a heart attack, like he's gonna drop drop down again any any minute now. And it's like he's not. It's just a it was a freak thing. Um, and you've got to put your trust in the medical services that he's fit enough to play again. And he'll go through it and an insane amount of medical tests to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um I don't know if he has been fitted with the with the heart device. I think I think he has. Um and that's why he can't play in Italy because they've got a rule where you you're not allowed to play what if you've got a sort of pacemaker type device fitted. Um but the Premier League you are allowed that so um I think you you've got to then start judging Christian Eriksen on is he still a good enough player and I think the answer to that is um, a resounding yes because he would improve uh, Brentford he'd give them a perfect lift at, at a time of the season where you just need to see it through because they're, they're doing good work you know they're not they're not in the um, relegation fight and they never really have been um, but we sometimes see with with newly promoted teams they get a bit complacent towards the end of the season because they think the job's done um, not saying they will do that we don't know but bringing in a player of Christian Eriksen's quality would certainly sort of strengthen that uh, that squad to the point where they, they, they could see it out and they could even finish in, in and around the sort of mid-table top 10 um, positions if, if everything goes well for them. So it's um, I think it's a good move for everyone because Ericsson gets football, gets to play his way back into into some confidence and some proper fitness. Um, Brentford get a, a nice little boost um, and they get a quality player out of it. So I don't see any sort of downsides to this. Well, we'll watch this one with interest. Brentford have spoken to Christian Eriksen about a possible six-month deal, but there's a long way to go in that one, supposedly. Let's move on now and talk about this story that comes from The Telegraph this morning, Joel. This one on the back pages, and it's to do with your team, Manchester United. They're supposedly interested in Aston Villa midfielder John McGinn. Is that the sort of player with the tenacity and the bite required to play in the Manchester United midfield at the moment? Is this an acquisition that you would welcome if it goes ahead? I've always liked him. Um, I think many more Manchester United fans would like him if he was called Miguelinho and he had a 30 mil clause playing for Leipzig, but um, he doesn't. <laughs> he plays for Aston Villa in the Midlands and he's called John McGinn. <clears throat> so I don't think he's very favourable just purely on that aspect alone. Um, obviously, he's twenty-seven. Man, use midfielder be called the the McField with with McGinn and McTominay. Oh, I don't want another McField flipping. That gives me nightmares enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think I, I do like him. I think he's a really good player. He's twenty-seven and he's pretty much approaching his peak now. And he's the only thing that I would be cautious about is the fact that he's such a vital player to the Aston Villa side. And now that Steven Gerrard's the manager, I'm sure they'll be charging well over 40 million for him an absolute minimum and to be honest I just feel as though we need someone especially a holding midfielder who's just of top top quality I'm not saying he's top top quality but I mean I think I feel as though he's he's right for that Aston Villa side he has everything around him which allows him to tick in terms of Douglas Luiz next to him um, and in terms of the way they play I'm not sure he'd be a, the right fit for our midfield just because we don't have amazing quality in terms of him midfield around him at the moment. Um, and for me, if it was my pick, I'd go for uh, Shuameni from Monaco just because he's super young at the moment and he just looks like the type of tall, 
bread and butter type Jorginho that's what we need we need a kind of Tony Cruz type player who can just literally not give the ball away for 90 minutes because if you think about it we haven't replaced Michael Carrick since he left and that was in what 2013 and since then the club have probably wasted a good 150 million to 200 million trying to find these gap start players in terms of like Morgan Schneiderlin a finished Bastian Schweinsteiger and they just didn't work so we need to go back to the drawing board and you know what if if McGinn could be could be got for a good amount in terms of like market value and not what the value is to Aston Villa then I think I would absolutely do it because I think he's a really good player but it's just not the way it's going to go and he's too important to Aston Villa for them to let him go for any less than what they want because he's, he's going to be difficult to replace he's a vital player for them um so I I don't think it's an I think it's a non-starter just because they're going to be wanting a lot and you know the well within the rights the same with Grealish he's not worth 100 million but to them he was I think it's interesting you mentioned what the value is to Aston Villa because let's just suppose Marley that this report from the Telegraph is true and that Manchester United do want John McGinn will Steven Gerrard the Villa manager do business with Manchester <laughs> United because there were reports recently that he almost exiled Axel Twanzebe who was on loan at Villa Park from Manchester United and Twanzebe has since had to go back to Manchester United and be loaned elsewhere he's now on loan over in Italy so do you think Steven Gerrard will do business with Manchester United or do you think he'll completely rule out any potential of dealing with them. I think that if if Steven Gerrard managed to get £50 million, just let's say, for, for John McGinn to Man United, there's only one winner in that deal and it's Aston Villa. Because, what you know, yeah, it's, it's selling to Man United, but John McGinn's not good enough to play for Man United. I'm sorry, but he's he's just not. He's not good enough to to turn Man United from and also ran into a, a, a title challenger. They've got the money to get a better player. I think fifty million, for example, if you were John McGinn, I think that was the fee that was linked with him uh when these rumours first came around about a year ago. Um so if it's a similar fee, then you're looking at fifty million for McGinn and all I'm thinking is how much would Wolves want for Ruben Neves and how much would Leicester want for Yuri Tielemans? And how much would Leicester want for Wilfred and Didi? Because any of those three players, if Man United could go out and sign any of those, two of those three players, I think they become a much, much, much better team. As in, I think they could push for the title if they got everything sorted out in that department. But John McGinn, look, I like John McGinn. I like that, he, that he's um, technically a decent player. He's got good energy and good bite. And sometimes you need that in midfield. And well, a lot of the time you need that in midfield. But in terms of quality, he's not good enough to play for Man United. Um, and I think if Man United fans are looking and going, yeah, yeah, we need John McGinn in our midfield, I think that's a, a sign of how low expectations are at Old Trafford these days because he's he's not good enough for them at but do all. You think, do you think Stephen Gerrard would even sell him? Oh, um, <laughs> 50 million. Well, well, that's the thing. Like, if you sell, you know, if you sell someone for stupid money, then... Yeah, then I think he would because, look, money talks at the end of the day. And I think Gerard would be like, well, 50 million, How? What? who could I get for 50 million? He's probably, he's probably got a, a list of transfer targets he wants. So could he probably get someone else for, for 20 million that could replace McGinn? And then you got 30 million in the bank. So I think I think he would. Um, I also don't believe these Twanzebe rumours at all because Twanzebe was never in the Aston Villa team ever. So his, his brother coming out with... 
um, the the whole Steven Gerrard didn't play my brother because he he used to play for Man United and he was on loan for Man United is, is a load of balls to be honest. But um, yeah, I think if if you pull if you pull your rivals' pants down in in the transfer market, I think that's that's as much of a win. That's more of a win than just not selling to them in the first place. Well, that's an interesting one for sure uh, in terms of whether John McGinn will be on the move. He's certainly someone who's performed really well for Aston Villa. Um, But those are the thoughts of Marley and Joel. And Marley, you mentioned about having money and money talking. This is a really interesting story to do with Eden Hazard. The Catalan newspaper El Nacional have reported that Real Madrid have had a 50 million euro bid, which is 40 million initial fee plus 10 in add-ons, from Newcastle United, they've accepted. So Azard himself has allegedly turned down the chance to sign for Newcastle United, but the bid of 50 million was accepted from Newcastle by Real Madrid for his signature, but the player has decided he doesn't want to leave Real Madrid. Allegedly, his wages and performances are annoying Florentino Perez, who's the Real Madrid president. What do you make of this one? Because it's just another name on a long list of names that have been linked with your club. But this one is suggested that you know Real Madrid were really keen to to get rid of Hazard, and he could be available for fifty million. Uh, I I don't believe it. I don't I don't buy into it at all. But it, I mean, if it was true, um, I don't really I don't really get it. Like forty or fifty million. I think from what I've heard, that Real Madrid are desperate to get rid of him. So. Why? Why do you need to uh, to to spend that much on him? Is is that what they still want for him? Because I mean, they got eighty. They they signed him for eighty, and he's done. He's barely played a game for them, really. He's he's spent best part of two years injured. I don't think you can you can charge anywhere between forty and fifty. I know I know like money talks with in Newcastle. We've got loads of it to burn, but. Um, Spanish media is is something I've never been able to. Have. I've never looked at Spanish media and gone, I trust that one because they're usually right. I think they're, they're all as bad as each other. Um, with with filling column inches and and um, and e space because it's just there's. I just think it's Hazard looks to be coming to the end of his Real Madrid career. There's there's talks of Ancelotti not getting on with him, Perez not liking him, and he's still one of the top top earners at the club. So I think it's uh, a case of he's for sale and they've got money, so let's put them together. But I can't see us going out and trying to sign Hazard now in this uh, in, in a relegation battle because you're just never going to convince him. Maybe in the summer when you can say, "Look, we've got a uh, we're in the Premier League if we are, um, and we can we're we're putting these plans in process. Do you want to be part of it?" But not in January. It's never really going to work, is it? Newcastle have supposedly gone for those big hitters, Joel, and we've mentioned this before because they've been linked with every top player really in Europe and that's the case because I don't think anyone really knows what's going on behind the scenes at Newcastle United. Do you think that these are the sorts of players that Newcastle are going to be angling for or do you think that, as Marley says, it's just trying to fill that column space because we've seen players like Chris Wood and Kieran Trippier both go to Newcastle United players of differing quality in my opinion and also James Tarkovsky has been linked from Burnley as well in the last few days and James Tarkovsky is a very different proposition to Eden Hazard so is it somewhat 
closing your eyes and throwing a dart and seeing where it lands when it comes to predicting who Newcastle are going to sign because it feels like even those involved in Newcastle in the local press aren't 100% sure what sort of player Newcastle might land. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the easiest route to clicks, isn't it, really? I mean, I remember when Manchester City first got took over and they were getting linked to, you know, Kaká and Benzema and literally every single new hot prospect that was on the market, they would their name would be next to them somewhere not very far away. Uh, but obviously, in terms of Eden Hazard, I mean, like obviously no disrespect to Newcastle, but Eden Hazard is not going to drop down from probably the biggest club in the world to a team that's at the bottom of the Premier League fight in relegation. I mean, the guy's been playing top level for all his career, and I don't believe for one second that he would even think about having to contend with a relegation battle, considering the heights he's reached. Um, I don't believe he's finished, but... I think he's he's one hundred percent past his peak, and I'm so surprised at how I'm surprised in terms of the downfall, but I'm not surprised in terms of how his Real Madrid career has gone because some of the greatest players have gone to Real Madrid, like Kaká's one of them, who was a Ballon d'Or winner prior to his move to Real Madrid, and he had he, he was nowhere near the player he was at AC Milan, and he's he's been countless examples of that. Um, and Hazard's just another victim of it. I feel like you just have to have a certain type of ego and a certain type of superstardom to you to actually make it at that club. And he's just he doesn't fit the mould of a kind of Galactico-style player, in my opinion. Um, but I think with Real Madrid, and I know for sure that this summer's going to be a massive uh, transitional period for them because nearly all of that old crop of Madrid team that won um, the three or four Champions Leagues on the trot, they've pretty much all been eased out now. Obviously, Ramos and Varane left last summer. Then you've got uh, Marcelo, who will be leaving. Gareth Bale's contracts up. Carvajal's contract maybe. I'm sorry, Carvajal may be leaving in the summer. So they're going to have a huge, huge summer this year. And I think they're just desperately trying to either drum up a little bit of interest and awareness for some of their outcasts. But at the same time, it's the Spanish press using Newcastle's... Um, money and news and story around it to try and create a story that just never was because I don't believe for one second that a bid has been accepted under the table the English press haven't heard about it at all but they've managed to decline it all in that time it makes no sense to me Um, (laughs) it's it's, it's one one of the worst best kept secrets I've heard (laughs) there's still 12 days left of the transfer window and I can't wait until the end of January because then we don't have to talk about Newcastle United signing anyone (laughs) for another six months at the very least until the summer yeah yeah (laughs) if I if I see that El Chiringuito tit talking about Newcastle United, <laughs> that old bloke off the Spanish press. I'll, I'll chuck my laptop through the window. <laughs> Don't do that. We could do with your laptop being in good working order for the social media channels, of course, on Sports Social, um, at the Sports <laughs> Social on Twitter, at Sports Social Official on Instagram, and on Facebook. If you type into the search bar Sports Social, you'll be able to find our page there. And we'll keep you up to date with any of the latest chance for news when it comes to Newcastle United. If there's anything confirmed, you'll be able to hear about it on our social media pages and on our website sport-social.co.uk just before we go Marley if you could pick one signing that you could make realistically for your club between now and the end of the window at the end of the month who would you go for oh uh put me on the spot there it's got to be realistic it's got to be real rules out Harland then um (laughs) it needs to be a centre-back so I'd probably pick um Botman, 
Sven Botman. Interesting choice. Interesting choice. Those are the thoughts of Marley and Joel on today's Football Social Daily. We'll be back again tomorrow with another podcast. We are the only show with a brand new podcast every single day of the Premier League season. But for today, that's it. And we'll speak to you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.